Welcome to episode 40 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre. On Stageworthy, I might talk one-on-one with an actor, director, playwright, or producer, or I might get a group of people together to talk about a specific aspect of theatre in Canada. If you'd like to be a guest on Stageworthy or just want to drop me a line, you can find Stageworthy on Facebook and Twitter at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website at StageworthyPodcast.com. My guest is Rebecca Northern, an actor, improviser, and director, and the creator of the hit show Blind Date. If you enjoy the podcast, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or Google Music or whatever podcast app you use, and consider leaving a comment or rating. I noticed that. I mean, uh, I, I reached out to you on Twitter. I noticed that that your your Twitter profile says that you are it lists Calgary and Toronto. Are you sort of like moving back and forth between each, or are you in transition between one and the other? No, I have um, one firm foot firmly planted in each city. Cool. Um, is, do you find do you find that difficult uh, transitioning between two cities? Um. Hmm. No, I've been doing it for such a long time. No, like I grew up in Calgary. I moved to Toronto in 2001. Mm. Um, but I've always gone back to Calgary to work. I have really good professional relationships there and colleagues that inspire me and, and, and continue to encourage my work. So I'm very happy going back and forth. That's, of course, yeah. If you've got, if you've got the, the people, then of course you're going to go back. Um, I mean, you're most known because of, I mean, for uh, a number of things, but I think I first became aware of you because of Blind Date. Mm-hmm. Um, which came first, Blind Date or Mimi? <laughs> uh, they arrived simultaneously, actually. Yeah, I was asked to uh, by Tina Rasmussen to create a short piece for the Spiegel show at um, Harborfront Center in, I think it was 2007. Uh, and the idea for the very short little clown turn and the character of Mimi both showed up at the exact same time. Mm. So I had never previously I had never done clown before, but because the environment of the Spiegel tent was sexy adult circus, right. I thought, well, there's probably room for a sexy clown in there somewhere. <laughs> and I mean, how long was it originally? The piece itself? Yeah. It was just, it was 10 minutes. Okay. 10 to 12 minutes. It was a really short sketch. The guy that I brought up on stage really didn't get to do any talking at all. Um, And, uh, but it went really well for the whole summer that we were there. And at the end of it, I was left with the question, well, what if, what if we took the time to get to know this person who, Mm. who we're bringing up on stage? And that's what blossomed into the full length blind date. Was was the idea of of like I mean it is a mystery who you what what you're going to get each time you bring somebody up like that mm-hmm. was that did you find that exhilarating terrifying both yes both absolutely both <laughs> both completely I'm I'm certainly um, uh, an adrenaline junkie otherwise I wouldn't be an, an improviser to begin with and I loved the the challenge of of working with the unknown of a different person each night. So that's really, really exciting. But it was also, you know, there's a tremendous amount of fear 
when you realize 50%, at least 50%, if not more, of the performance I'm about to do is in the hands of a stranger who's not a performer. So I had to learn to trust my own instincts and my improv abilities and also make lots of space for that person to show up and be who they are and to have their own element of control in the show. And there's actually like a ton of delight in that for me now. Is there, is there, uh, do you have any, have you, have, have you been worried about, about, you know, if somebody comes up and they are like, they completely shut down once they're up there, is there, is there anything built in to help, bring them out of their shell or to make them blossom or well the 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 pre-show selection process is something that we've uh, as a company refined over the years and got we've got very good at it um so we all as a company uh, uh, patrol the audience or mingle with the audience before the show and we have a we all have pretty good instincts mm. um and when we're out there, we are looking for someone. Our rule of thumb as a company is if you were at a cocktail party, who did you meet in the lobby that you thought, I would want to get to know them better? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're looking for someone who's open and friendly and a little bit playful. You know, we we never want to put someone on the spot. And we also, we tell people in advance, um, listen, you're on our short list. Do you understand how the show works and how would you feel if it was you that got chosen? We usually have five or six people on our short list, but we give everyone the opportunity to say, oh, no, absolutely not. Please don't pick me because we don't want to put anyone into a really uncomfortable situation. We want somebody who maybe is a little bit nervous, but but also kind of intrigued and game to play with us. Mm. And then once you're, I mean, one of the things we've certainly learned is you don't know how someone's fear is going to change them. So mm-hmm. the person you met in the lobby, if they get really, really wigged out on stage, could be something else might show up. But that hasn't happened for a very long time. That being said, we have um, a timeout is built into the show. So either myself or the guest can call timeout anytime mm-hmm. they need to step outside of what's going on and check in and. We do everything that we can to make sure that person looks good and has a really good time. And we joke with them and we say, you know, we want you to feel like you've been to the theater spa at the end Mm. of this. (laughs) Now, I noticed when when you were last doing the show in Toronto, you were uh, subbing out every so often so that somebody else could come in. And I was in Hamilton recently and noticed that I think that person is, is performing that show. Um, is it strange for you to give over and teach someone to do a show that's been so inherently your show for so long? It actually, you know, it, um, it hasn't been my show for, for that long, actually. Um, I maybe did one or two very short runs of the show, and then we went down to New York. And at the end of the New York run, my producer down there said, what did you learn about blind date that you didn't know before you came to New York. When we went to New York, that was the longest run I had done up until that point. So Mm. we did a a one month run in New York. And I said, I'll tell you what I learned. I can't do eight shows a week. (laughs) This show is exhausting in a way that no other performance has. So from that point on, there's always been two women that travel with the show. Um, the, The headlining clown does six shows a week. And then the Mimi alternate takes the matinees and does two. 
So it, that's usually how it plays out. So when I was at Tarragon, I was the lead clown and Christy Bruce was my alternate. Right. So she did the matinees. But Christy has been headlining Blind Date for a long time. There's a woman named Renee Amber who lives in Alberta who has headlined the show before. Mm. And it's also a, it's a really great way to bring new Mimi's on board is to say you get to work backstage and watch this other person do the show. And then you you have a controlled release into the show, mm. basically, because it's not something you can really do a ton of rehearsal for. You really need to you, you can learn the arc of the show um, and then you need to jump into the deep end of the pool with a member of the public. And well, that, that give it a go. brings on an interesting question. If there's if there is no way to really rehearse that show, what mm -hmm. was the creation process like? Um, I should circle back. I didn't totally finish answering your question. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. No, no, that's okay. It's because I just went off on a tangent. Um, <laughs> but that being said, I, is it difficult for me to release the show and watch other people do it? Not at all. Like. Mm. Uh, every single woman that has um, come on board and done the show has been a close friend. Mm. Um, these other improvisers, people I've known for more than half my life. And it is delightful for me to sit back and watch them. Because um, one of the things that's inherent in the show is that we tell the truth. So any stories that come up about our lives, our thoughts, you know, our political leanings. That's the truth of the woman in the clown nose. So none of us do the show exactly alike. And mm. so we are always surprising each other. So it's actually a really, it feels like a this great kind of gift that we all share with each other. Mm. So it's really fun. It's really That's fun. Cool. But then in like the, the rehearsal or the creation process was a lot of hypothetical, well, I think maybe there'll be a scene in a cafe and then maybe this will happen and maybe that will happen. And then you can only do that discussion so long and then you'd actually just have to put the show up in front of an audience and try it. So mm. um, most of the work that I've been doing in the last eight years has been in this form, which I'm calling spontaneous theater in which we go, okay, we think we have a structure. Great. Let's start bringing in people, uh, non-performers and putting them through the structure and see, see how it goes. Well, that, I mean, I mean that's, that's the advantage to being somebody who comes from an improv background. I imagine that, that uh, you're a little freer than, than somebody who maybe is a strictly theater person uh, to you're better able to deal with the surprises that you might get in that situation. Well, you would hope. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. You never know. You know, you just, you cannot prepare for every possible scenario. And every time we map out a show and we think, oh, this is great. We think we know how people are going to respond. I think it's very similar to the designing of a video game. We've actually started referring to our, our rehearsal volunteers as our beta testers. And they come in and they break the show and we go, oh, wow, we did not see that coming. Okay. Hmm. What do we, what do we do to change the structure and continue to hone and refine these structured narratives so that it truly is a meeting in the middle between improvisation and scripted theater, which is why we call it spontaneous theater. Hmm. Did, did you learn anything by watching other people perform the show? I mean, I know that you, you learned that you couldn't do eight shows a week when you were doing it yourself, but do other people teach you something about the show? 
Yes. Every time I watch someone, a new person do it, I go, oh, the structure of blind date is really solid. It really, the structure itself really works and, and it's, um, strong enough that it makes a really solid foundation for people to stand on top of and improvise inside of. So that's really a good thing to know. Um, and then I would say that all of us, all of the women who do blind date, we all steal from each other. Um, you know, someone will come up with a great line one night and we think, well, that's, that's great. I'm stealing that. <laughs> so we all lend and borrow and, and the other thing, too, is I learn things about my friends that I didn't know. So I get the opportunity to watch them in this conversation with a stranger, and you never know what questions will come up. And just when you think you know everything about your best friend, a date asks a question and an, an answer comes out, and you go, geez, I didn't know that about Christy. That's amazing. <laughs> That's really interesting. Yeah, it's really cool. So this show came out of uh, the Spiegel tent. Yeah. Um, and I think I, I, you know, that was, that feels like such a long time ago. It was. Um, and uh, I remember it was the Spiegel tent. I think it ended up being on the harbor front in Toronto for a little bit longer than, than they originally envisioned because it was so popular. Oh yeah. It's, they kept extending and extending and it was, it was easily one of the coolest summers I've ever had in my mm -hmm. career. Well, I mean, and it, it, it gave you something that uh, you've you've been doing kind of ever since. Yeah, I know. I'm really grateful. <laughs> <laughs> what was, I mean, I know that, that you sort of have an improv background, but did you ever envision doing stuff in a theater? Or what did you think was going to be your trajectory in, in the entertainment industry? Oh, gosh. You mean when I first started out? Yeah. I had no idea. I mean, I think really early on as a student, you know, doing my undergraduate degree at the University of Calgary, I thought, I just hope I make money. That's all. Um, <laughs> and I think I, I've, I've kind of held on to that mm. um, in terms of I, I like all aspects of the business. So I like producing. I like directing. I've, I'm playwriting, like traditionally writing scripts more and more. I started improvising when I was 16, so I've continued to do that, and I love that. I, I'm, I get bored very easily, so I like to kind of jump around a lot. Uh, I even love, I particularly love the marketing and PR side of the theater business. I find that very fascinating, and, and I love, you know, working with designers to come up with a brand and a logo, et cetera, et cetera. I love all of it, all of it, all of it, so... I know when I was a student, a lot of talk in class was, well, everybody's saying like, well, if you're really lucky, someday you'll work at Shaw or Stratford. Um, and I thought, yeah, sure. Yeah, I'd love to work at those places, but I also want to work everywhere. So in my mind, I've always had this like, I've, I've talked about this in other interviews that I have like a brownie sash in my mind that. Like, you know, that you go, you sort of collect badges uh, yeah. across the country of like, yes, I have my, my TYA touring in a van in the middle of winter badge. And, you know, I'm always sort of thinking, well, what badge am I missing? And what do I want to do next? Hmm. I, th I am kind of getting the feeling that, I mean, while I think a lot of people still hold up, you know, if, if you're lucky, you'll, you'll work at Stratford or Shaw. I do, I do see so much more going on in the indie theater scene 
It's so exciting. It's so exciting that there's that there are careers that are not just at those big theaters anymore. Yeah. And people are able to make work on their own terms in a way that I don't think that people ever have before. I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm no expert, but the, couldn't you also look at the business world that way too and, mm -hmm. and say, well, a hundred years ago, there were a whole bunch of big companies and you would try to get a job at a big company. But as time has gone on, more and more people have adopted the entrepreneurial spirit and you see more and more startups and you see more and more people interested in being their own boss and working for themselves and making a go of it. Mm -hmm. The idea of working at any company, whether it's in mainstream business or, uh, you know, if we're talking about those, those big theatrical institutions in the country, the idea of working at a company for 15 to 35 years in one place, that's a rarity these days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. So you said that you started uh, improvising when you were 16. Was yeah. that, what drew you into improv at that age? Oh, my, one of my best friends had started volunteering at some theater called the Loose Moose Theater. And he said, you might really like it. You should come check it out. And I had started playing theater sports in my high school drama class. And then in going up to Loose Moose realized, oh, the guy who invented theater sports started the Loose Moose Theater Company. And then here's people in their 20s and 30s who are playing theater sports every Sunday night. So I was enthralled and went mm -hmm. to the artistic director, Dennis Cahill and said, wow, this place is amazing. Can I start coming here and playing here? And our high school team had been invited up for some sort of high school tournament. And I just never left. And even now when I go back to Calgary, I continue to work with Dennis and collaborate and, um, a lot of my closest colleagues I met at Loose Moose when I was 16 and we're still all really good friends and we continue to make work together, even though we've kind of, you know, scattered all over the place. But I would say that Loose Moose, ha uh, the alumni of the Loose Moose Theatre Company have a better track record than any, than a lot of training facilities in the, in the country, you know, right. People from Loose Moose have gone on to, right on Jimmy Fallon and the tonight show and have their own television shows and their own radio shows, you know, Peter Oldring and Pat Kelly have a, a radio, sh a very successful radio show on CBC called this is that, you know, these are all my contemporaries mm. and the generation ahead of me was, you know, Bruce McCullough and Mark McKinney from kids in the hall got their start at, at loose moose or, um, that is a pretty good track record. It's pretty amazing. It's yeah. pretty amazing. Was improv your? I mean, you were, you were in a, in theater arts, uh, and that's where you see where you were playing the theater games. Was theater something that you were interested in before that? Before I was sixteen, or did you take? Did you go? Did you go into uh, theater arts like some people do because you thought it was a, a course that you you know was something that you had to take or? Oh, like no, Were you no, interested no, no, no. in theater no. before that? No, I knew, I probably knew from a very early age, I was going to, I wanted to be an actor. There was no question in my mind ever that I, I knew. Do you remember what it was that, that, that made you know? Huh? No, probably not at the time. I, I think I, I mean, I certainly have strong memories of being taken to see plays 
at Alberta Theatre Project in Calgary. And I do have a distinct memory of being 15 years old and standing at the back of the Martha Cohen Theatre as the house lights came up at the end of the show and thinking, someday I want to work here. Um, I don't know. I've, I just, it was always the most exciting thing, whether even in elementary school when touring productions would come in, getting to take the afternoon off and go down to the gym and watch a play was the most exciting thing ever. And I was far more turned on by that than, say, sports, for example. Yeah. Um, yeah. And my brother and I, my brother's also a performer, and he's one of my collaborators. We work together all the time. My brother and I used to put on sketches in the living room at home to entertain our parents. So we've kind of always been doing it. Um, and I have a, it's, and it's in our family. Like, I have a second cousin who's one of the founding members of Bard on the Beach in Vancouver, and she's now the head of the theater arts department at, uh, in Regina. Her name's Catherine Brock. So, And she tells me she's got some old black and white family photograph of our you know, ancestors. That's too old of a word. But our, our family members coming up from the States and running out of money and so stopping to put on a play to raise money so that they can continue on their journey. So. Brilliant. Um, before, before the, the invention of Mimi, um, what sort of brought you to, uh, that world? So you went through, uh, the loose moose and you were, uh, did you do theater school? Yeah. Yeah. I have a bachelor of fine arts from the university of Calgary. Um, so while I, I was in school, you know, in the week, um, in my acting classes, working on Shakespeare and Shaw and Ibsen and, Chekhov and all that, you know, doing my Tom Stoppard units. Uh, and then on the weekends, I was still improvising. Mm. Um, and then I also started to, I think in my second and third year of university, I started auditioning for theater companies outside of the department, which kind of got me in a little bit of hot water as a student. They were saying, you know, we think you should be doing student productions. Mm -hmm. But I started getting cast in semi-professional stuff and making money as an actor before I graduated. Um, and I ended up doing summer stock when I was still a student. And I also got paid to be part of an in-house improv group at a comedy club. So I was always, my, my artistic pendulum was always swinging back and forth between mainstream scripted theater and improv. Hmm. Always. Um, and, and so I worked as an actor in Calgary for, you know, quite a few years after I graduated. And then when I moved out to Toronto, I thought, well, I want to, I'll take the path of least resistance. And I auditioned for the second city because I had a lot of friends who'd gone through there. And I ended up, that was sort of my first foot into Toronto was working mm -hmm. in second city. Um, did, uh, were you in the company at second city? Yeah. I started out in the touring company and then I was on the main stage for nice. about a year. Yeah. Nice. Um, now if, if, if it, I did, I did notice that you, you have a, a pretty, I mean, for, for a Canadian artist, a pretty extensive uh, entry on Wikipedia. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how much is, is actually accurate. I actually find it really rare when I'm talking to somebody and they have a, a Wikipedia entrant uh, entry. So whenever that happens, I do, I do have that open and I sort of look at it <clears throat> and, uh, uh, I, there's a number of things that, that come up here. 
uh, list of theaters that you've worked at, uh, working uh, uh, a, Dora May, a Dora Award, things like that. But the one, there's like a one line that, that sort of talks about the show, This is Cancer. Yeah. Um, which, was that the first show that you create that you helped create uh, uh, on your own? Oh, no. No, 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 no. I know. I've been like creating shows and self-producing forever. So, oh. I mean, bef- right out of university, uh, some friends of I, mine and I in Calgary started a theater company called Upstart Crows. And we did sort of reduced comedic versions of variety of Shakespeare plays. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would do those in pubs, which was really, really fun. So I've kind of always been doing that. Um, you know, before we did This Is Cancer, Bruce Horak, uh, my collaborator, and I did um, what we called the Macbeth show in Toronto, uh, which was a reduced comedic version of the Scottish play. But how This Is Cancer, This Is Cancer came about because Bruce had been cast in a show called The Hollow that was directed by Mike Kennard of Mump and Smooth. So he, mm-hmm. he started to learn about the world of Buffon. Yeah. And he... He was on a variety bill one night and whatever, I can't remember the original name of his Buffon character, but he was told that the name was too close to somebody else's name and that he needed to change it. And he was kind of pissed about it. So he said, okay, uh, tell the audience, my name is cancer. Introduce me as cancer. And everyone went, that's awful. Oh no, that's terrible. And he's like, yeah, exactly. I'm coming out as cancer and I'm going to try to seduce an audience member. But it, it planted the seed for us of, you know, what if, so what if you expand on that idea? I mean, what if, what if the disease of cancer was personified? Bruce is a cancer survivor. We both of us lost a parent to, um, to cancer. So we kind of, you know, we're, we're speaking from personal experience, but what if cancer were personified and he was coming to town to do a cabaret? What would that look like? Mm. You know, and what if cancer's not out to maliciously get us what if he falls in love with people what if that's his thing Hmm. so we started to kind of build up this this original mythology around cancer and it turned into this is cancer which bruce has performed and toured every year for the last 10 years wow yeah we like to do long shows we like to do shows that just play over and over and over so that we we end up, we eventually end up getting paid for the, the rehearsal time that we front loaded for free. <laughs> well, I mean, that is, I mean, in terms of like when you're creating shows, whether for fringe festivals or, or other things, that is kind of the dream. I mean, you would love to have a, a Rick Miller show uh, yeah. and travel the world and just do that show sure. for ages. Um, when you're doing a show for 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 ten years or or eight years, in the case of uh, of uh, I think you said uh, eight years for for Blind Date. Yeah, coming up um, on nine. Wow. Um, I mean, obviously, one of the things that 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 is something that an actor has to learn is how to keep it fresh and, and as though you're performing it for the first time. That's like lesson number one that we really have to learn. Um, but then when people think about performing a show for, for, for 10 years, um, is there, is there a way, are there ways that you've learned to, I know that what my answer to the question is, but I'm curious about for you, how you keep it fresh over so long. Well, you know, even this is cancer again, it's scripted, but it has 
pockets, significant pockets inside of it where there's improvisation happening and there's audience participation. And Blind Date is very much that. And so are my, my newer shows, similar, Legend Has It, and these other ones I have in development at the moment. Um, it is, at least in my, my sort of, I feel like I'm pioneering this genre that we're calling spontaneous theater, is, is always including um, the unknown. So I never know what an audience member is going to bring to the stage. Mm. In terms of like, I, I personally, the idea of doing the exact same scripted show for 400 plus performances over 10 years, that I don't know if I could handle it. I might mm. go crazy. Mm. Uh, but you just, I think you have to continue to find different challenges for yourself. So you know, Blind Date has had has had over 400 performances. Now I've shared those with other other women. I'm not doing. I haven't done all of those, but um, I will set. I, I I will have my friends that that I work with on the show give me an agenda to play out right before I go on stage. So mm. you know, try being softer tonight, or mm. work on being more playful, or. And you can do that inside of scripted work. I mean, I, I ran the main stage show that I was in at Second City. Um, we ran, I think, for eight months. And so in that case, I kept it fresh for myself by saying, okay, I know I'm getting X amount of laughs in this sketch by doing what I'm doing. What happens if I do a little bit less? Oh, same amount of laughs. That's interesting. Tomorrow night, I'm going to do a little bit less. Oh, bigger laugh. That's a surprise. So experimenting with how much energy am I putting out? You know, how how real can I play it and still get the same amount of laughs, et cetera, was like giving yourself little homework assignments, I think. Hmm. Hmm. That's that's really fascinating because I know recently I, I performed my own uh, a solo show for the first time and and I think what surprised me that I don't think I'd quite considered when I thought about performing a solo show was how important the audience is. Oh yes. Uh how much how important it is to to talk to the audience and use them as your scene partner. Mm-hmm. I mean I've seen solo shows before but it never it never somehow never occurred to me that that although people say that's your scene partner, it never occurred to me until I was doing it that yeah, that, that's your scene partner. Yeah, they really uh, are. Yeah, you have to react to them and you have to talk to them, and there's no way to fake that. Yeah. Um, when you were first performing solo, um, how how terrifying was that for you? How because some people find it terrifying and other people go in exhilarated at the thought of it. Oh so scary so so scary when we first brought blind date back to world stage at harbor front i mean the first thing I, I mean i didn't think anyone was going to come so i was sitting in the dressing room kind of like preparing myself for you know 10 people in the audience um and then my brother came and knocked on the door and said so we're sold out uh, and that was worse. No, that is worse. That was worse because I thought, oh, no, like, what am I going to do? And I was so afraid. I had never been this afraid in my life. I was so afraid on the opening night of Blind Date in Toronto that my hands were visibly trembling and I was almost crying. Actually, I think I did burst into tears when he said we were sold out. And so right before I went on stage and I was hyperventilating and this is not in character for me. <laughs> 
my brother came and he put his hands on my shoulders and then he said, I don't want you to think about the audience. I want you to think about, and I don't remember what he said, but he gave me a homework assignment. And that's where that whole idea of work on something different every night came from was him just saying, stop thinking about the scary stuff, go out and this is your agenda. And that completely grounded me. Um, now, in the case of Blind Date, I'm not re- it's not really a solo show. You know, I'm there. I'm oh. up there with with um, my scene partner is someone from the audience. But I have in the last two years written and performed my own true solo show, uh, written in an autobiographical sense, uh, dramatized. Um, but I didn't like it. I don't like going on stage all by myself. And yes, I very much love playing with an audience, but. I didn't like being alone backstage, alone in the dressing room. I didn't like coming off stage and, you know, thinking, well, what am I going to do? Go for a drink by myself after the show? No, I did not like it. So I'm not sure if I would, if I would solo perform again, or if I, if I did, it would have to be someone else's material, I think. That's, I mean, you, you bring up a good point because, I mean, if you're doing a show with other people, they, you know, you're backstage with them, hanging out. You're they're your company, uh, both on stage and off. There, you know, you're 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 hanging out together, supporting each other, and then after the show, you do go out together, and that's doing a solo show is entirely something different. <laughs> yeah, and yet I find it. You know, I finished my my solo show and thought I can't wait to do another one. Now, good for you. That's, that's great. I don't know how that's going to feel um, later on if I'm traveling. Uh, and it's just me, but I think, you know, I enjoyed the, the, the performance of it. Well, listen, uh, I have a lot of good friends who are standout comedians and traveling by yourself. That's pretty lonely. Going back yeah. to a hotel every night by yourself is pretty lonely. But I will say, yeah. I do think, I think every actor should do a solo show once in their lives. Mm. To know what it's like to be completely by yourself and to as the lights come out, reach out energetically and go, can I feel the audience and what's their temperature tonight? And okay, I want them to come on this ride with me. And it's just me. I mean, it's never just you. You still have your stage manager and you have your lighting design and your music and those really become uh, your comrades on stage. So you're never really alone, 100%. But the experience of being the solo performer, I think, is invaluable. Even if you just try it and go, oh, that was horrible. I never want to do it again. At least you know. Yeah. The next time you're in a play, you have so much appreciation of the other people on stage. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, for me, I think the first time I performed the solo show was the, like the, anytime I connected with the audience, there was a desperation of, of, of needing other people. Um, yeah, we're, look, we're primates. Like yeah. it is wired into us that if you're alone, you're dead. You need community. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so having, having performed your, your, your solo, your, the, your truly solo show, your autobiographical show, um, is that something that, that are you, are you, have you, now that you've done it, are you done? Are you, are you done with, with truly solo stuff or is it well, something that you want to explore more of? I don't know. I'm done for now. I have other stuff that I'm more inspired about and I'm done with that show in particular. It was called Troublemaker. Mm. I think, yeah, that's good. I, I can check, cross that off the list. Mission accomplished. Mm. Yeah. 
Hmm. Um, and so, I mean, you, you've been you've been sort of alluding to things that you're working on. Is there anything that you can that you can talk about? Something that you're really excited about that you're in the process of working on or or, or about to do? A whole bunch of things. Um, I'm heading into uh, this fall. Um, we are adapting Blind Date for Buddies in Bad Times Theater in Toronto, and we are doing Queer Blind Date. Interesting. So I have two of my very good friends, uh, Julie Orton and David Tomlinson, um, alternating. Hmm. So first week will be um, the lesbian blind date, and the second week will be gay blind date, and then the third week they will alternate. And fingers crossed it'll get hold, held over. <laughs> um, and... <clears throat> Simultaneous to that, regular Blind Date is running with Christy and Tess Degenstein uh, at Theatre Aquarius in Hamilton. So Mm -hmm. I'm really stepping into my director's shoes and kind of shepherding these two productions and the the training of new clowns. Hmm. How does it feel to to step into the director's shoes? I mean, it's not your first time directing. Oh, no, I love it. Yeah, I I love it. I'm happy to do it, and I'm, I'm happy to see the show have a continued life, and I am... So thrilled and humbled that Evelyn Perry was open to the idea of this next chapter of Blind Date. Of you know, like the the sort of the core of Blind Date, our thesis is that everyone is lovable. Hmm. So then it only stands to reason that we need to keep opening up the show and opening up the show and allowing a, a larger and larger array of audience members to come up on stage. So when I do the show, I choose men because I'm straight. Yeah, uh, and I want the show to be truthful and honest. And so, to get to share the love with with that, the buddies audience just seems like the next most obvious step to me. And I'm so excited. I have to agree that that seems that seems to me like the. Uh, I mean, again, if everybody is lovable, or it's it's it only stands to reason that the show would work in that setting, in the buddy setting, as well as uh, on any other stage. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then um, what else am I doing? I have a project called An Undiscovered Shakespeare that we've been workshopping at the Stratford Festival. This is We're just about to head out there. So this will be our third year. Hmm. And um, <clears throat> the premise of that is every life is Shakespearean. Hmm. So we got a true life love story from someone in the audience and then we in theory turn it into a five act undiscovered Shakespeare play improvised in iambic pentameter it is the scariest thing I've ever attempted okay that that does sound pretty terrifying <laughs> it is just, just the idea of improvising iambic pentameter just as a start oh yeah we're terrible is, at it we're terrible at it but Kate Hennig is a really good friend of mine and she is an amazing teacher and so we've been working with her and she's been coming in and drilling us in iambic structure and sonnets and the language of Shakespeare. And, you know, but I, as someone who's been improvising for more than half my life, it's, it is both terrifying and refreshing to step up on stage and, and observe in myself, Oh, I'm afraid to speak because I don't (laughs) want to make a horrible mistake and I don't want to do it badly. And I don't want to look stupid. And Yet, because I'm an improv teacher, I know that that's exactly why I need to open my mouth and not worry about it. Right. <laughs> so you said, how many years have you been workshopping this? Uh, this will be our third summer going back to Stratford. And, 
and how how like how do you how how has it been going in terms of like getting that undiscovered Shakespeare and, and creating that are you do you usually get the five act structure? Do you usually get the iambic pentameter, or do you even just care uh, until after? Um, well, we had uh, we had two public performances last year as part of the forum. Basically, the way our show is structured is Act One is the audience member gets to come up on stage. They go back in time. They get to hang out with William Shakespeare and his acting company in the pub. Um, and it, and so Act One really is very much an interview. If that makes sense, where we're, we're getting the story. Uh, and then we take intermission, and when we have 15 minutes to sketch out for ourselves what we think the outline of, of a five-act structure would might look like. And then we come back after 15 minutes, and we just start. Uh, and we ho- what, we, what we learned last year, because last year's the first time we, d- we did it publicly, was if you just really jump into the deep end of that iambic pentameter rhythm and you go for it, sometimes it happens. And then, the, and then what would happen to me is I would, I would hear myself speaking in an iambic pentameter and I'd get really excited that I was doing it. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And as soon as I got excited and self-congratulatory, it would all fall apart. So then you've fallen off the meter and then you just get back on. So there's a real sort of sense of jazz um, mm. to it. But a, a good friend of mine from the, the regular Stratford company came to watch it, and I asked him for feedback uh, afterwards. And he said, boy, you guys sure are adept with the text. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's the greatest compliment ever, because there's no text. We're no, absolutely. <laughs> I'm sure, though, I mean, that, that being said, I'm sure any Shakespeare expert would come and sit and watch us and, you know, have their toes curl and Shakespeare's rolling over in his grave. But I think it's, it's worth trying. You know, I don't want, I don't, I'm not particularly interested in things that I know for sure are going to be a hundred percent successful. Like what are those? I don't even know what those are. Um, but to sort of issue the challenge to myself and, and some of my colleagues to say, what do you think? This sounds really hard and scary, right guys? Let's try it. And everyone goes, oh, yeah, okay, that's crazy. Let's do it. And the that's really fascinating because it it the the idea like everything that you're describing here about this show just makes my stomach clench up in a way that not much else does. Yeah. But how how incredible to to get up and do it and just just go for it. Well, my my early improv training with Keith Johnstone was you have to risk failing. Uh, and that, you know, to watch, if you were watching golf and it was hole in one after hole in one after hole in one, that would be the most boring thing ever. Um, that it's the attempt that's more interesting than the success itself. So, and that the struggle is interesting and that that's where theater lives is the attempt and the struggle and the failure. And then how do you recover and, oh, you're successful and, oh no, you lost it. And that's, that's to me is a thrilling night in the theater. And also, I mean, ultimately, it's a metaphor for life too, right? Absolutely. Like, who's having a hundred percent successful life? And let's go drive over them with the truck. <laughs> I, it, it occurs to me that, that one of the things that you said about um, this, that about performing this uh, undiscovered Shakespeare, is that when you get excited and you start thinking about about how you know you're doing it and 
and, and that becomes a conscious thought that that's where it falls apart. Is there a lesson about, about improvisation <laughs> in there? Yes. Well, there's a lesson about improv and there's a lesson about acting. The moment that you're outside of yourself, patting yourself on the back and go, and, and whether it's, wow, look at you being a great improviser or look at, look at this amazing acting moment you're having right now. Well, then you're no longer in the moment. You, you've stepped out and you're being your own, you're editorializing on your own performance. So cut it out, you know, yeah. <laughs> like try to take your ego out of the equation. But, um, how to successfully take your ego out of an, out of that equation on a, on an ongoing basis. I have no idea. I can't, I, I mean, I think I just kind of go in and out of that and it's like meditating when you catch yourself having a thought, you go, Oh, I have to let that go. Yes. I've missed, yeah. I've missed the, I'm missing the moment again. Yeah, no, absolutely. That sort of, I, I did find when I was performing my, my, my show recently that, that there would be moments when I'd be like, this is going really well. Oh fuck. You know, just yeah. to just to get myself out of thinking about that, because the moment I do that, I'm not connecting with the audience. Well, and, and actually, you know, the the I I try to do this. The moment that I have the thought, "Wow, this is going really, really well," I try to follow it up with "Stop being an asshole," because <laughs> you are being an asshole in that moment where you're like, "My God, I'm so awesome! Look at what I'm doing!" Then it should fall apart. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, this has been really great. I like. I want to thank you for 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 being a guest uh, on on the podcast, and uh, thanks for being uh, a great guest. This has been a lot of fun for me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. <laughs>